I want to tell you the story of a remarkable life, a remarkable person, that of Richard Wagamese, who was born in 1955 in an Ojibwe community in Ontario, Canada, so an indigenous Canadian community. And uh, as he did, reflects on his earlier years, he says that it was complete poverty. Um, he even goes on to reflect that his home essentially was a tarp draped over a branch in the wilds where Richard, his parents, and his siblings would live day in and day out with many other people in the Ojibwe community. And in reflecting upon that poverty and that hardship in his early life, he lifts up a couple experiences that he says were foundational to making him who he was. Uh, the first experience is that once in the midst of an Ontario winter, a Canadian winter, which you can imagine is quite harsh, um, his parents just left him and his siblings under that tarp and they didn't come back for days. And as you can imagine, in that winter, they had no food, they had no water, uh, they had no source of heat. And so his siblings and Richard had to go out and find shelter in a railway car. And as they were trying to scrounge for some food and water in that railway car, a police officer found them and eventually took them away from their parents and sent them to foster care. Richard would find himself living with a Presbyterian family uh, that cut off all connections with his Ojibwe heritage and culture and his family members. And Richard would go on to reflect that that was probably the most damaging thing about what happened, that he was never able to make amends with his family who abandoned him, and he was never able to dig deep into who he was. He would even go on to reflect that in his parents abandoning him, that uh, what else were they to do? They were a people where the government had tried to scrape out every ounce of Ojibwe, every ounce of indigenous culture and heritage from those people. What was left for them? And Richard had his own experience of that being put into foster care. And so at 16 years of age, in ninth grade, he would run away and never finish his education. And from 16 onward, he was living outdoors. He was homeless. And uh, sometimes he was in jail, and most of the time he was uh, homeless. And um, he turned to drugs, he turned to alcohol, and life was not looking very good for him. But there was a moment, as he was a young adult, so this is several years now that he was living on the streets. As a young adult, he was wandering the streets and he came upon a building. And he noticed this building, people were going in and out as he tells the story, and he wondered what was in this building that people could go freely. And as he went into the building, he discovered it was a library. And uh, because he had a ninth grade education, he could at least begin reading, right? He could understand most of what was in that library. And he was pulling books off the shelf, anything that he was interested in. And what he would do is create a fortress on the table of books stacked high so that people wouldn't see him at the table and want to kick him out because he looked homeless. But he would continue to go to the library and build his fortress of books and learn anything that he could. He uh, would eventually develop great relationships with the librarians in the library, and he would bring them lists of quotes and ideas and authors and topics that he wanted to learn more about, from philosophy to poetry to anthropology to the history and culture of his people, um, and they would bring him the books and he would just keep on reading and keep on reading. He even asked for books on geometry and wanted to teach himself geometry. And one day, while he was in that library, in his book fortress, um, a brown bag appeared on the desk. And he didn't know where the brown bag appeared, but he immediately thought that it was going to be a trap, a way to get him arrested for stealing. And so he just left that brown bag there for a couple hours, and he kept looking at it, wondering what it was. And eventually, no one came to reclaim it, and so he opened it. 
and inside was a sandwich given to him by one of the librarians. He would become good friends with that librarian, and she would even invite him to his very first Beethoven concert. He was so um, uh, worried about his appearance at that Beethoven concert um, that he even taped pieces of his shoes closed so that they would look more presentable, so that people would not judge him. The librarian told him, just close your eyes, ignore the people, and experience the music. Eventually, his life would get together. He would take journalism courses, teach himself writing techniques, um, and he reconnected with his family after 21 years away from his people. And upon reconnecting with his family, he became an advocate for the Ojibwe, he became a poet and author, and uh, eventually he wrote the piece that we heard today. The piece that begins with, The morning is my table. He would also go on to write one of my favorite quotes, which is, uh, the truest and greatest gift that we can give ourselves is to live in ceremony. To live in ceremony. Now, some people might hear that, those words and wonder, what do you mean to, to chant, to, uh, to, to do ritual, um, to pray? Um, uh, what do you mean by ceremony? Do you mean as if, uh, in the reading we heard from Richard, to waft the medicines of the Ojibwe people using an eagle fan? And the answer is, well, yes and no. Uh, the no is because ceremony goes much deeper than ritual for the Ojibwe people. Richard was once having a conversation with an Ojibwe elder, and uh, they reflected back to Richard that ceremony is just not uh, the practices, but it is the practices too. Ceremony is more about remembering. It's remembering why we do practices. It's remembering to be humble in the midst of all that life is, the good and the bad and all the in-between. It's remembering to show gratitude for what life has given us and the life that we get to experience. And above all else, beyond those three things, of remembering why, of remembering to be humble, of remembering to show gratitude, the greatest purpose of ceremony is to remember to remember. And so that is why we shared that reading earlier about the morning is the table. Because Richard go on to write, it's not just the morning that is the table, life is the table. Life is the altar upon which we enact our ceremonies day in and day out, every single second. Life is ceremony. And so that's an important thing for all of us to remember in this time. The uncertain time of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, where many of us are worried about our jobs, many of us are worried about when will our kids go back to school, many of us are worried of what is this going to mean for our loved ones who are vulnerable? What does this mean for me? What if I get coronavirus? And what does this mean long-term for our society and for the world? I'm afraid we don't have those answers yet, but what we can do is wake up each morning and remember that life is the ceremony. Every second is ceremony. What we are experiencing now is ceremony, and what can we learn from this? What is yet to come is ceremony, and what can we learn from that? And how do we continue to find humility and show gratitude in the midst of all that is happening? I know I'm deeply grateful that this community is still finding ways to connect and we're still meeting and we're still joining together in worship on Sunday morning and we had a choir rehearsal online with 13 people in attendance. Uh, my Zendo had 18 people in attendance and there's so many wonderful things where we are trying to recreate community. We're living out our lives. We are living out the ceremony of being a human being. 
And so that is the challenge to all of us in these times. What is the ceremony of your life telling you and teaching you in this moment? What new opportunities can we find here and now? I look forward to hearing from all of you of what the gifts of life will bring you in this very challenging time. Blessed be. Amen.